so there I was, stranded in the middle of a lake, but how did I get myself in that predicament, you may ask? Well, it was a sunny day on Brookville Lake, and my family and I were there for our three favorite things, summertime, friends, and jet skis, okay? So we were there at Brookville Lake, we were having an amazing time, and we decided to park our boat uh, near shore, and we sent all the kids out to play along kind of the little cool little beach area, and all the adults hung back on the boat in the shade. And if you know anything about me, I'm not much for just sitting around in this hot sun when it comes to the lake. I'm what you would call an adrenaline junkie. I enjoy those high adrenaline lake activities, whether it was tubing growing up or, or Maybe, maybe it was, uh, you know, skis or kneeboarding. Those were the things I enjoyed most. So you best believe when my good friend Brandon leaned over to me, jingling a set of keys, he said, hey, you want to take my new jet ski for a spin? I was like, 100%, let's go. So I grabbed the keys, I get my life jacket on, I hook the safety harness to the, uh, to the jet ski, and we just take off. I just take off full speed. I'm going as fast as that thing will go. Man, there is not a more freeing feeling in the world than when you are driving a jet ski on an open lake. And I just felt like, man, I felt like the lady from Titanic. I just had my arms like, like that. I was like, man, this is amazing. And as I was going, I would kind of look back over my shoulder to see if I could see my group so I knew that I wasn't getting too far away. And something I was looking for was my friend's tube. He had a bright yellow tube like the kind you would tow behind a boat. And as long as I could see that bright yellow circle, I would know that I had not gone too far astray. So there I go. I'm I'm cutting around. I'm going around the lake. And then in front of me, I see there is a wakeboarding boat. And if you don't know what a wakeboarding boat is, it's a boat that creates these massive waves behind it meant for jumping with a wakeboard. So I thought, I got this great idea. I don't know who these people are, but it just looks like fun. So I'm going to follow these people up the lake. And I was just cutting back and forth, jumping over their wake. And these random people that I've never met in my life probably looked like a total weirdo, but they were all just holding up the thumbs up and holding up stuff in the air. And I was like, man, these guys love me. I don't even know who they are, but I'm just following them up the lake, making as many jumps as I can. And I get to this point where I stop and I realize I have no clue where I'm at right now. So I spin the jet ski around. I do a 90 degree turn here, 180 rather. And I look and I see, sure enough, way off in the distance, there's a little yellow dot. And I'm like, that's the tube. And it is super far away. I better head back. So I'm heading back. I'm I'm flooring it again. I'm doing the Titanic lady thing again. Okay, on my way back. And as we start to get closer, I start to see little dots around the yellow circle. And I know, okay, that's my friends. That's my family. I almost made it back. Good thing I decided to turn around until I saw some smoke, and the, and the jet ski just died, and I'm sitting there on that wave runner, and I'm just close enough where I can see my, my family and my friends, but they can't hear me, because I was screaming at the top of my lungs, I was waving my arms, trying to get their attention to come take the boat and help me, but no matter how loudly I yelled, no matter how much I waved my arms frantically, hooping and hollering, they could not see me or hear me. And after about 30 minutes, all I could think of is like, man, I wish I had a fire right now. I wish I had some fireworks or a flare gun I could shoot in the air to get their attention or a torch or something like that, but I don't. And after about half an hour, I realized no one's coming to help me. 
So I did what any rational person would do. I tied a rope around my ankle into the jet ski, and I jumped in the water and became a human tugboat, and I brought the jet ski to the shore, and then I walked the jet ski along the muddy shoreline, sinking like this deep in mud for about a mile. It took me about an hour walking this jet ski like a dog on a walk all the way back to my group. And when I got there, they were freaking out. They're like, did you die? Oh my gosh. I'm like, no, it just died on me. And my friend was like, bro, you didn't even check the gas tank. What are you doing? There was no gas in there. And it turns out I ran out of gas. But I told him, I'm like, man, if I would have had a fire right now, you would have saw me and came to my rescue a long time ago. But the reason I tell you this story is because sometimes in this life, I believe this generation feels like that. This next generation of young people growing up in our world that do not know Jesus and have been one of the most unchurched generations of all time, it seems like we're waving our arms. We're trying to get their attention. We're hooping and hollering at them. And no matter what they do, they don't see us and they don't hear us out. And a question I want to ask you guys today is, could it be that they don't see us because we've lost our fire? Because we've lost our fire. Sure, they may have seen the Christian t-shirts. They may have seen that Jesus sticker on your car. Maybe they've even seen that Instagram Bible verse in your bio. But have they seen the fire in your heart that only Jesus can give you? Or have we, like me on the jet ski drifting away, have we traded the Jesus of the Bible for a consumerism Jesus that is more acceptable and more convenient, more comfortable and more palatable? Have we replaced that with the real Jesus? And today we're going to learn two truths. I want to explore two truths today when it comes to our fire. And I believe these are the truths that God wants to show us. And the first thing we're going to look at today is that drifting is easier than we think. And this is true with the people of Israel. And the text we'll be in today, Ezekiel chapter 36. And the people of Israel, here's the thing about them. They had a fire. They had seen God at work. When they were slaves in Egypt, God set them free. He came down like in a pillar of cloud by day, in a pillar of fire by night. He parted the Red Sea. Many of you know that story. And he led his people to freedom. And he vanquished the Egyptian army so they could get away safely. And he led them to the promised land and gave them a land, made them a nation, made them a people, and blessed them over and over and over again and set a fire in their heart. And then he gave them a mission. He says, you are to be a light to the nations. And what that meant is that any country that would look at Israel, they were supposedly supposed to be able to look at Israel and see, man, if I'm looking at Israel, this is what it looks like to know the one true God. That was the example they were to set, but we see that they do quite the opposite. They forget about God. They begin to adopt other gods and other traditions and they start to embrace paganism and they start having all these gods and they have a new standard of morality that is nothing but sin and they have a new code of ethics where they abandoned orphans and widows and because of this, this led them to this toxic sin cycle over and over again. Here it is on the screen. Uh, the sin cycle, what it looked like in the history of Israel. This is what happened to them over and over again. But first, they would always be in this place where God would give them blessing because of their obedience, because of how closely that they followed God. But somewhere down the line, they would forget about God, and they would embrace sin, and they would go away from him. 
And that always led to punishment for their sin, usually in the form of God sending a foreign nation to basically to capture them and enslave them. And that was their wake-up call. Because then there would, he would rise up some sort of prophet so that there would be a call to repentance and deliverance. And when they repented of their sins and turned back to God in obedience, God would bless them once again. So over and over again, they would get a fire. They would forget about the fire. They'd be punished. They would repent. Over and over again, rinse and repeat this vicious cycle they couldn't seem to break free from. And me as a kid and a teenager reading this story growing up, I thought in my head, like, how could Israel be so stupid? Like, God blessed you over and over again, and you just forget about him like that? Like, man, I don't know about you, but if I saw the God of the Bible part the Red Sea and vanquish the Egyptian armies, I'd be like, okay, big guy, I'm sticking with you. You're my guy. You're going to protect me. I trust you with everything. But I don't want to give them too much discredit because I believe you and I do the exact same thing. Many of us have been right up there. We've gotten baptized. God's done a miracle in our life and has blessed us and has regenerated our hearts and the Holy Spirit came to live inside us and he has set our hearts on fire. But the first distraction, that next day in the office, that next day in the real world, that next day at home when our kids are giving us grief, we forget about it like that just like Israel. And that's where Israel finds themselves in Ezekiel chapter 36. And once again, we find them in the downward spiral of the sin cycle. And because of their sin, God sends the nation of Babylon to totally wipe out Israel. Totally wipe them out. And they basically capture them and enslave them and take them back away from their land to Babylon. And they are being punished for their sins because this time Israel stooped to a whole new low. Check this out. Ezekiel 36 verse 13. Here's what it says. This is what the sovereign Lord says. The other nations taunt you saying, Israel is a land that devours its own people and robs them of their children. So let me get this straight. You have a people that is supposed to be known for how much they love God, a light to the nations, a people where if you were to look at them, you would see this is what it's like to follow God. But instead, they're, knowing, they're known for mistreating their own people and their own children. And I was reading about this in Panera Bread, and something popped in my head. I'm like, that sounds familiar. We do the exact same thing. We are a people that's supposed to be known to be a light to all nations. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the Great Commission. We're supposed to bring the gospel to all people. But so many times, the capital C church, it's the global church around the world, they get a bad rap, don't they? Aren't they known by our culture to be, maybe someone's thrown out the word judgment or hateful or, or mean or not accepting and I realized many of those are mischaracterizations because most of them have never actually stepped foot in a church. But I do think there is some truth behind that because I have asked many waitresses, what is your least favorite day to work? And they will say Sunday after church. My sister is a waitress down in Georgia. And I said, what, what's your least favorite shift to work? And she said, sure enough, she said, Sunday, the church crowd after church is the worst. I'm like, well, what's so bad about the church crowd? Like church is supposed to be the nice people, the kind people who love Jesus, right? And she says, they don't tip well. Uh, they're rude and demanding and they're not very patient. They lose their patience very easily. And it's just very difficult to be around them. And instead of being a people that is the most patient, 
shows the most grace like Jesus did, the most love. A lot of times the church, and I know Eastside's different because I see God doing amazing things in here, but as the church of, as a whole in, in our world, we get this bad rap for being just like Israel, a nation that's supposed to be the light of the world, but instead we get kind of, our, our light gets kind of hidden. What kind of light are we giving off when people look at us like that? Because we have a generation that is lost and searching for truth, and when they look for the truth in your heart, many times we cover our fire with a heart of stone. We hide it under a bushel, which leads us to our second truth we're looking at today. Our second truth is this. should be right up here on the screen. <laughs> Abracadabra. I'll just read it for you. Uh, our second truth today is that fire is essential. Let's go. Fire is essential in reaching the next generation. I need us to understand this, that a fire is essential in reaching the next generation. So how do we fix this reputation that the church has? How do we fix what our culture and our city around us, if we want to take this city, I 100% believe they need to see the fire inside our hearts. They need to see something that is real. We need the promise that God gave the prophet Ezekiel in, in chapter 36, verse 22 through 26. We're going to read it together. It'll be here on the screen says this, Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, the people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show you the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations and I will gather you from all countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. We see in this passage that God's people, they're in this totally split-minded state where they're worshiping God traditionally one day of the week, but the rest of the week they're living completely separate from him, separate from him in a complete separate way with total filth and darkness in their life. And yes, there's consequences for their sins. Yes, they are receiving justice for their actions and they are taken away by Babylon. And yes, they deserve it. But regardless in all of that, God says this amazing promise to them. Verse 26, here it is. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I believe this is the same promise God has for you and I. What does it mean to have a heart of stone? It's a heart that is completely double-minded. It is a heart that acts one way at church in a completely different way the other days of the week. It is a torn heart that doesn't know right from wrong. It is a heart that doesn't get bothered by evil anymore. The things that used to disturb you in your spirit and your soul, you become so accustomed to it that when conviction comes your way, it's like a Nerf dart hitting a brick wall. It just bounces right off. And the things that used to bother you don't bother you anymore. 
Here's a good way to look at it. Um, and it comes from me being a youth pastor for about almost a decade now uh, in full-time youth ministry. I love it. I wouldn't have any other job. But one of the weirdest parts about my job are doing gross games, okay? And one of the weirdest, grossest, messiest games I ever played was actually right here at Eastside this spring, this past spring. And what we did is we had something called a food obstacle course, okay? A food obstacle course. And the first feature on this big obstacle course was called the All-American Slip and slide. The all-American slip and slide. And it's just as interesting as you can imagine, okay? It consisted of this giant tarp covered from corner to corner in just about every expired condiment you could ever imagine from the church refrigerator. I mean, it had cottage cheese. I threw like two massive packs of hot dogs on it. Uh, it had American singles, baby shampoo and soap to make it slippery all the way through. And we just had gobs and gobs of students sliding over this thing and leaders, probably over like 50 or 60 people sliding down this slip and slide. And by the end of the thing, I mean, you look like you had barf from head to toe covered from top to bottom. Okay. And poor Chaz, we had Chaz over there in the corner with a hose sitting there trying to spray people off. There was no use. It wasn't doing anything. Um, there was a point though, when, when, uh, I just took the clothes. I'm like, these are done for, I just had to throw them away and get totally new clothes. It was that bad. It was that disgusting. But I think sometimes we look at our heart of stone that way. When we look at a heart of stone, if we have a hardened heart that has been covering up our flame, we look at it through the lens of, oh, I'm just going to clean this off. I'm just going to get, you know, Chaz to hose it down or get a baby wipe or something, and, and hopefully it cleans my heart off. When in reality, we need a whole new set of clothes. I need us to understand this tonight. A heart of stone is not a picture of something that nearly, merely needs to have dirt cleaned off of it. It's a picture of God taking a heart that is dead and replacing it with a heart that is alive. It's taking a heart that is not beating, that is totally dead, and replacing it with a heart that is alive. It's a heart transplant that only God can give us. It's a heart transplant that only God can do a miracle in our life in. A heart of stone isn't made overnight. You can kind of see, just like my jet ski, how Israel could kind of slowly drift away. And maybe this has been your experience. If you once had a flame and you've kind of lost that fire that God's given you, okay, sometimes this drift is a slow fade. And it started and took root in the history of God's people slowly. And over time, they drifted farther and farther away until eventually there was a generation that didn't even know God's name. And I wonder if that happens to us. And a truth I want us to get today is that it is impossible for a flame to be seen in a heart of stone. And maybe you've been here. Maybe you've been to a point in your life where you, you were on fire for God. You got baptized. You gave your life to Jesus and you were on fire for him. And you were getting convicted of things and things in your life were changing and things were going in the right direction finally. But then when you get back into the real world, you get back to everyday life, distractions come up. The job situation's still there. You, maybe you lost a job. Maybe you're busy running your kids from practice to practice. Maybe those sins that you're being saved from are starting to creep back in again. And before you know it, your fire is getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer until it completely disappears. A heart transplant is what you need. This is so much more than just, I need to clean my life up now. 
You need a heart transplant that only God can give. It is impossible for a flame to be seen in a heart of stone. And this is what makes it tough is because the next generation craves what's real. Studies show that Gen Z, Gen Alpha, they can sense fakeness from a mile away. They can sense if you're not being real a mile away. They want to see what is real. And I tell you what, if you are claiming to have the truth and there's someone lost in the darkness and they come to you for the truth, you better have a fire ready to show them because, or else they're going to look at you from top to bottom and they're going to say, you're just like everyone else. And they're going to walk away from the way, the truth, and the life. They're going to walk away from Jesus because you were hiding your light, that fire that God has placed in your heart. We need that heart transplant. We need to be a signal fire in the darkness. And I gotta be honest with us, they don't care about a heart of stone. If you're waving your arms saying, come check out Jesus, but you're not living it in your life, they know you're fake. They've already tried things that are dead in this world. They've tried drugs, they've tried alcohol, they've tried sex, they've tried pride, they've tried arrogance, they've tried uh, fame, they've tried money, and nothing ever satisfies them. They have to keep running back to it over and over again because they're running to things that are dead, but I don't want them to see something that is dead inside of us. I want them to see a heart that is regenerated by Christ and that is alive. That's what I want them to see. And that is what my hope and prayer is. It's a heart that says, this is how you can know your heart is alive. It's a heart that says, I used to be this way. And then Jesus showed me a new way and how bad and destructive this way was. And when I gave my heart to him and my life to him, and when I got baptized, Jesus came into my heart and my life has changed. That is a heart that has been regenerated by Christ. It's so much more than a convenient checking a box. It's giving your life to Jesus from the inside out. And when I think back to this, like if we have any hope to reach this next generation for Jesus, we got to be real. We got to be authentic. And I think back to my life when I was a young boy, um, it wasn't necessarily the music or the lights or the sound system or even the sermon. Those things helped me in my walk with Jesus growing up. But what stood out to me the most and what kind of convinced me that this whole Jesus thing was real was looking at my mom was looking at my mom. Any morning, any given morning, I could get up no matter how early. Sure enough, my mom was awake before me, sitting on her back porch, on the back porch swing. And she would have a cup of coffee, a Bible in her hand, and she would have a big notebook. Inside the notebook was the prayers of hundreds of different people she's been taking prayer requests for and prayed for people all over the world. And as a little boy, I remember going up to her and saying, Mom, what are you doing? What you doing out here, Mommy? And she told me, she said, son, I'm talking to Jesus. And she invited me to talk with Jesus too. And before I knew it, I was sitting on that back porch swing with my mom and Jesus. And I spent time with her every day watching her talking to Jesus and praying to Jesus. And I saw something in her. She showed the fire in my life. And it was in that moment I knew Jesus was more important than any sports team I would play on. Jesus was more important than any college I would go to or any relationship I would be in. Jesus was more important than any other decision in my life because I saw Jesus for real in the heart of my mom, and I saw a fire inside of her that only God could give. And do we do the same? And I'm sure many of us have those same stories. All of us have someone who looks up to us. I know there's coaches in the room. I know there's grandparents in the room, life group leaders, aunts and uncles. There's people that are looking up to others. And what does our life say? What are we showing them? 
What fire do we have? And as a parent, I got to ask and kind of just address all the parents in the room. When did we decide it was someone else's job to put a fire in the hearts of our kids? When did we decide it was someone else's job? Like, I promise you, if you send your kids to Eastside Youth, our staff will do everything in our power and our volunteers will do everything we can to fan that flame that God is starting to foster inside of the life of your student. But your job is far more important. You have way more time with them than we do. Your job is so, so important. And if we don't, the world will. If we don't start with that flame in our families, the world will. I love how Pastor Vody Bauckham puts it when he says, raise children, let Caesar raise your children and you will have children of Caesar. Guys, I just want to challenge you, don't wait for someone else to do what God has called you to do yourself. And that goes to me 100% as a parent. And we like this idea of a flame starting in the lives of this next generation and in the students that we have influence over in our lives. But what happens when this flame actually starts to kindle? What happens when this flame actually starts to grow? What happens when, when a child in your life walks up to you and says, Mom, I don't know if I want to go to college anymore. I feel like God's calling me to take a gap year to, to be a missionary in another country. And you're like, hold on, let's talk about this. Or dad, I want to quit the basketball team because I feel like God's calling me to serve throughout the week at church with the little kids. And I feel like God wants me to have a heart of service. And you're like, man, I've been taking you to basketball since you were in like bitty ball when you were just like a little guy out there in elementary school. And you can't quit basketball. Mom, dad, I, I, I know that we always go on this lake house trip, but, but the youth group's going on this retreat and I would really like to go. We always go on this trip, Okay. We're not even going to argue about this. Dad, can we pick up my friend for youth group tonight? He needs to hear about Jesus. You mean the kid who lives all the way in Salem? I don't want to drive all the way out there. Sorry if you live in Salem. That's far away. Um, <laughs> here's one that hits home to me, and this has happened recently. Daddy, can you read me a Bible story before bed? I'm kind of tired tonight, sweetie. Let's try another night, okay? And she doesn't ask me about it as much. And what could I have done differently? And I wonder, and this is what we have to see, how we respond to the fire God is lighting in the hearts of our students, how we respond to that may greatly impact what Jesus is trying to do inside of them. Are you fanning the flame or are you snuffing it out? Think about that. If God's doing a work in your student's heart and he's trying to light a fire in their soul, you best believe Satan's going to be on the other side trying to discourage them with just about everything you could think of. And maybe your encouragement to someone who looks up to you could be the one thing, the one burst of oxygen to their fire that keeps their fire alive. We don't really think about that much. Pastor Dave and I were talking about the message this week, and um, as we were like thinking about, you know, what stories do you want to include, and I was kind of telling him a little bit about, you know, where I felt like God was leading me on this message, he shared this story with me about his son, Kobe, and we both agreed that it was too good not to share. So I just want to share a little bit of it with you guys today. But the story goes like this. Uh, Dave signed Kobe up for a baseball team when he was about 12 years old, and this baseball team played on Sundays at 1 p.m. So you can imagine the life of a preacher, like everyone wants to stop you at the door, everyone wants to talk to you. 
You know, you, if you're a preacher's kid, you know, you have to wait around for at least an hour and a half when church ends before you actually get to go uh, to Frisch's Big Boy or wherever you're going, okay? So Pastor Dave, um, he's stressed out every single week, trying to load everyone up right when he's done preaching, getting them in the car and jetting over to the baseball fields. And sure enough, every single week, he's about 10 to 15 minutes late to baseball practice. No matter how hard he tried, it's just too hard to get away as a pastor. They were just a little bit late every time for those games and those practices at 1 p.m. And there was this point where the coach absolutely had enough. He got Kobe and he got another boy who went to church and the rest of the team all around the pitcher's mound. And he said to them, no more excuses for being late. And that includes all that church crap. And you can imagine Pastor Dave immediately pulled Kobe from that team and placed him on another team. But he told me what stood out to him about that story most is that he said, I wonder how it would have gone differently if I had decided to give in to that coach and keep him on that team, what it would have said to my son about what's most important in life. We gotta fan the flame in our own family. And when that flame lights in our own family, it can spread to the world around us and this lost generation around us. This generation needs to see Christians that are real and authentic because the good news we have in here tonight is that we, there's a promise in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 36, if we go back two chapters to chapter 34, we see this promise that God is going to send a king and the king that is from the line of David would be different than any other king because other kings were evil. Other kings were rejecting God and accepting pagan practices and shunning their, turning their back on the God of the Bible, but not this king. This king would be of the line of David whose kingdom would never end, who promises to defeat the sin cycle and to remember the widows and remember the orphans and remember the least of these. And in this prophecy written 600 years before the events of the gospel, we know and we accept that that is Jesus. Jesus was the king that Ezekiel talked about. That we didn't have to be trapped in this sin cycle forever. We didn't have to be caught up in Satan's traps. We wouldn't have to be caught up in his schemes, but we would have a hope in a future because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, forgiving us of all sins in that cycle. And Jesus rose from the dead. He was brought to life by God the Father, and he sealed his victory over death so we can have a hope and a future and a promise that one day we could be with him, that anyone who believes in him can be saved. And we know that the point when you can become baptized, you have a new life with Christ. All the things that were old are made new. That heart of stone is turned into a heart of flesh. It's all made possible by Jesus. But how can this lost generation know if they have not yet heard? How can they know if they have not yet seen your light and the fire shining in you? We need a generation of Christians willing to be real and authentic, who don't hide their fire, who take this mission seriously that we are to love everybody, even the people who hate us, even the people who don't want to hear us right now, when they start to see how real you are and how you keep loving them anyways, they're like, what's different about these people? This is crazy. It's nothing like we see in the world today. And we, they notice there's something different than you can say, it's Jesus. Back in the fall, Dave led us in this prayer point uh, about drawing middle school and high school students to himself. And we prayed and we stood as one church and we stood as one body, one heart and one soul crying out. And today I wanna to do the same. We're gonna have another prayer point. And the prayer point today is our part in that. 
It's our side in that. Together as one, we're going to stand with one heart and one mind and one accord, and we're going to ask God, God, take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh so that when students look at us and this generation looks at us, they won't see us, but they'll see Jesus inside of us, and they'll see something that's different, and they'll see something that's real, and they'll see something that's authentic, and they'll want to know more about it, and we can point to him. This is our prayer point today. God, use my life to connect the next generation to Jesus. Use my life to connect the next generation to Jesus. So I want to invite everyone to stand. If you've never been a part of a prayer point before, if you're physically able, we'd love for you to stand with us in one accord. It's just a chance for us as a church to make prayer great, to give prayer a spotlight because we believe God is the one who can make this thing happen. And we believe that God is the one who can change any heart. So I want to invite you to stand and we're going to raise our hands like this. It's just a picture of us saying to God, God, I give you my life. I give you my everything. Take my life as an offering to be a living sacrifice, a fire burning bright for this next generation to see so they might see you, Jesus, in me. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for everyone in this room. God, I just pray that if there is a heart of stone that you would melt it today, God, that you would chisel away on whatever you need to chisel away on. God, we need a heart transplant. God, your church has been known for far too long under a bad rap, but we wanna be a church that's different. At Eastside, we wanna be a church that is on fire for your name's sake so that when others see us, they will see you in us, Jesus. God, that you would, they, they would see a fire that's so bright that it just draws them in. And those who are lost and those who are wandering, wandering, God, I pray that you could draw them to yourself because this is a lost world. And we need every single Christian to be willing to shine their light. God, give us a spirit and a love of authenticity for each other and for the world around us so they might know you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.